The Conflict of Christ with Satan by Adolphe Monod And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led in the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and to whosoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Luke 4, 1-18 My Christian friends, The aspect of Scripture truth oftentimes varies according as we regard it with the eyes of human wisdom, or with those of faith. And nowhere is that difference more striking than in the page which we have just read. For my own part I remember a time when I never met this passage without a kind of shame for my own understanding, and I might almost say for the word of God, whereas now I turn to it again and again as to a favorite passage where my soul finds food both grateful and abundant. This is so because the narrative is as full of wholesome instructions for the little child who simply trusts to God's testimony as it is of mysteries for the philosopher who assumes to judge the scriptures, instead of consenting to be judged by them. There is mystery in the personal existence of the devil, and in the influence which he exerts upon us. His influence is so clearly asserted in the scriptures that we cannot deny it without doing them violence. But as to its origin, its nature, its extent, on all these points we are left in almost total ignorance, there is mystery in the power granted to the devil to lay his infamous snares for the Son of God himself. We can understand how he tempts us, for by sin we have become subject to his sway. But how can we conceive of his being permitted to tempt the Lord of lords, the Holy of holies, him in whom he hath nothing? There is mystery in the nature of the temptation to which Jesus Christ was subjected. He was tempted, and yet without sin, these two facts are expressly affirmed in the scriptures. But seek to take a step further, and you are hedged in on every side. How can we explain a struggle against temptation, when there is no inward propensity to sin? Yet how can we reconcile an inward propensity to do wrong with unspotted holiness? If it were impossible for Jesus to fall, where is the glory of his triumph? If it were possible, what becomes of his divine nature? There is mystery, finally, in the manner in which the scene here described took place. 
Its basis is assuredly a real fact. Everything proves it. The tone of the narrative, the locality assigned to the event, the character of the book. And yet the text, considered both as a whole and in its various details, shows no less certainty than the fact was beyond the limit of human experience. How can we solve this apparent contradiction, this conflict of which earth was the theater while the actors were taken from heaven and from hell? Where did it occur? Was it in the visible or the invisible world, or was it on some dark boundary territory in its nature partaking of both, mysteries on mysteries? These obscurities I do not even attempt to solve. I examine my text simply from that practical point of view which a child could apprehend as well as we, and perhaps better. Guided by these words of the Lord, I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done. Let us seek the instructions which he here gives as the rule of our life. Now in this terrible conflict of the Son of God with the Spirit of Darkness we distinguish three principal things. The conflict itself, the victory, the weapons. Each of these three will in turn afford us instruction. By the conflict which he endured, Jesus teaches us to expect a conflict also. By the victory which he won, Jesus teaches us that we in like manner may conquer. And by the weapons which he employed, Jesus teaches us how we make certain our triumph. The subject is so vast that I have thought proper to devote three separate discourses to its consideration. We will restrict ourselves on this occasion to the conflict which our Lord maintained in the wilderness. This conflict should reconcile us to that which we ourselves are compelled to maintain. It is the outward expression of the struggles of our own souls. From you who are the children of God, and who are experienced in the Christian life, I fear no contradiction in saying that its temptations confound you, and at times even threaten to prove your ruin. Upon entering the ways of the Lord, it seems to us that the devil should be kept at a distance, where it is impossible for him to annoy us. When we feel his assaults, a secret terror creeps upon us, as if the Lord were leaving us altogether. Our anxiety increases if the temptation be prolonged and rendered more fierce, especially if it happens in moments of communion with God, and, so far as we can see, answers no good purpose. In such a case, we may be driven well-nigh to a state of despair. Now the conflict of Jesus corresponds to all this. Jesus is tempted. The struggle you are undergoing, he underwent before you. What do I say? Your trial hardly deserves to be mentioned when compared with his. Temptations are manifold. They are not equal. Nor is the temptation equally strong in the case of different individuals. In order, then, rightly to appreciate the nature of a temptation, we should ascertain not only what it is in itself, but also to him who is called to endure it. Must we, then, in the first place, consider the temptation in itself? Among all you have borne, you will find none to compare with that which Jesus had to endure, as related in my text. Think of it, and endeavor in imagination to put yourselves in the position of our Lord separated from the society of men, cast out alone into the midst of a desert, surrounded by wild beasts, deprived of all food, with the devil at his side incessantly attempting to ensnare him, and all this lasting forty days and forty nights. This situation, in which you dare not even imagine yourselves, was that of your Saviour. It appears from the account of the evangelists that the Lord was tempted during forty days, 
and that after this space the devil directed against him a final effort which alone is detailed to us in its full particulars. But we proceed. The true standard of temptation lies not in its external conditions, but in the internal sensibilities of him whom it visits. The cold, slimy touch of a serpent is one thing to the rough skin of a herdsman, and quite another to the delicate sensitiveness of a young child. The tempter's attacks are not the same when directed against a sinner like you or me, as when directed against the saint of saints. If we account it a terrible thing to contend with the spirit of darkness, what must it have been to the Son of God? To us, conceived and born in iniquity, fully subject to the prince of this world, his assaults, his onset, and the blows which he aims at us, are in keeping with the natural order of things. But for the only begotten and well-beloved Son to be exposed to them, is not this fearfully contrary to the nature of things, and must not his whole divine being have risen up against that conflict with unspeakable horror? However this may be, he has actually been in conflict with the tempter. Children of God, behold this only begotten and well-beloved Son wrestling as you are now with the eternal enemy of God and his people. Suppose yourselves to have been living in Judea eighteen centuries ago, and to have been informed that the promised Messiah was somewhere on the face of the earth. Where would you have sought him? I know not, but you would surely have sought him anywhere rather than where he really was. Not in the carpenter's humble abode, not among those whom John baptized on the banks of the Jordan, above all not in the wilderness fighting with the devil. And yet there you would have found him and you would have searched elsewhere in vain for forty days and forty nights. But had you there at last discovered him, would not the sight of his temptations have explained to you the inexplicable mystery of your own? Ah, I acknowledge it at last. The conflict before which I recoil, and under which I have well-nigh sunk, is the common lot of humanity, a lot so unavoidable that it must needs be waged even when humanity was united to divinity itself. Then... Let temptation come. Let it come in its most bitter, its most prostrating form. Nothing shall either surprise or terrify me. Jesus we must seek in the wilderness, Jacob at the brook of Jabbok, Moses at Massa and at Meribah, Daniel in the lion's den, John in his exile, Chrysostom in his disgrace, John Huss at the council of Constance, Luther at the diet of Worms. Jesus was tempted. And in what? The Holy Spirit answers, in all points. Yes, verily, in all points. Follow him by the light of my text, and you will see him tempted at all times, in all places, in all ways. First, at all times. This is but the beginning of sorrows, a beginning which the sequel will complete. The temptation being ended for this time, the devil departs from him, but only for a season. He will return to the charge, do not doubt it. He will return to it throughout the whole of Christ's career. He will renew it, especially when it shall reach the great, the decisive hour. After having once wounded his heel in the wilderness, he will inflict a second wound at Golgotha, in order that Jesus, who had begun to tread upon this serpent in his solitude, may finally crush his head on the cross. Thus, at the two extremes of the ministry of the Son of God, do we find two great temptations, the most terrible of all, opening and shutting the series of all those which assailed him in succession for three and a half years. The first, a temptation of covetousness, the rejection of all earth's promises. The second, a temptation of suffering, 
all the rage of hell and even the wrath of heaven to be endured. We too shall find on our way this double temptation of the desert and the cross, and generally in the same order. At the beginning of the Christian course we are called upon to overcome earthly desires by self-denial. At a later period, and especially in the last struggle, to subdue by patience the pains of the body and the anguish of the mind. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Second, in all places. Here we need not wander from our text. We here find Jesus tempted in the wilderness, tempted on the mountain, tempted in the holy city. There are men who have buried themselves in deserts, hoping thus to avoid temptation. Strange delusion. Did they then forget that it was in a desert that the Lord was tempted? You may have escaped the company of your fellow men, but how will you escape Satan and your own heart? These two foes, the outward and the inward, banded together against you, will follow you wherever you go. In the wilderness, on the mountain, in the holy city. That is to say, in solitude, in the world, in the church, everywhere you will have to meet temptation. Our business is not to flee, but to fight, not to exchange the temptations of one form of life for those of another, temptations so much the more dangerous in such a case because of our own selecting, but stoutly to contend against the temptations of that particular position in which it has pleased God to place us. Finally, and this is my principal remark, in all ways. Here, once more, I appeal to my text, the devil stops only after having ended all the temptation. Of all the temptations to which Jesus was subjected, that of the desert is the most characteristic and complete. We see here the enemy collecting his whole energies, exhausting in turn all his resources, all his means. It is more than a temptation, it is the temptation. It is a system, and so to speak an entire course of temptations. For the devil acts according to a plan, which we should know, and which the Holy Ghost reveals to us, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16 The order in which the Apostle names the three great principles of human covetousness cannot have been taken at random, especially as that order occurs in Eve's temptation, and in that of our Lord, as recorded by St. Luke. It seems that these three temptations were being arranged according to their degree of subtlety. The first was a temptation of the flesh, the second of the eyes, the third of the spirit. He adhered to that plan with Eve, who yielded to temptation when she saw first that the fruit was good for food, then that it was pleasant to the eyes, and lastly, that it was to be desired to make one wise. He adopted it especially with Jesus, whom he tempted first by the wants of the flesh, secondly by the exhibition of earthly pomp, lastly by the pride of a wonderful miracle. His intention in this place will appear very clearly if instead of simply looking at the temptations as such you penetrate into its spirit. Satan endeavors to make the Lord succumb in the first place by a spirit of distrust towards God, then by a spirit of unfaithfulness to God, lastly by a spirit of rash confidence in God. He appeals in succession to want of faith, to forgetfulness of faith, to abuse of faith. How skillfully is all this contrived, nicely arranged, and prosecuted to the end. Still farther, everything is an instrument in the tempter's hands. When his own resources fail, he employs those that are used against him, and turns into weapons for his own purpose the very means of resistance. 
Jesus has just heard a voice proclaiming him as the Son of God. The devil endeavors to seduce him by that glorious title. Jesus has been clothed by the Holy Ghost with superhuman dignity. The devil endeavors to make him abuse his power. Jesus fasts. The devil seeks to push him to extremities by hunger. In order the better to succeed, the traitor is transformed into an angel of light. He acts the saint. He consents to make use of holy things. The holy temple, the holy city, even the holy word of God are made available by his perfidious hands. Observe especially the use he makes of the name Messiah, which Jesus bears. Upon it he constructs the whole temptation. Jesus may exhibit himself as the Messiah, provided his Messiahship be not such as the holy prophets have described, but according to the conceptions of the carnally-minded Jews. In this he expected the better to succeed from the circumstance that he was addressing a Jew, and a Jew interested in answering the expectations of his countrymen. The Messiah is endued with supernatural power. Satan desires him to use it, not according to the sense of the prophets that he may save the souls of men, but according to the sense of the carnal Jews in satisfying his carnal desires and theirs. If thou be the Son of God, command this stone to be made bread. The Messiah must inherit all the kingdoms of the world. Be it so. Satan desires that he receive them, not as the prophets have foretold from the Father's hand and as the reward of his sacrifice, but as the carnal Jews expected, without a struggle, and from the hand of the prince of this world. If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. To the Messiah attach glorious promises of aid and of deliverance. Satan wills that he should make use of these, not in the acceptation of the prophets that he may accomplish his work of mercy in spite of all obstacles, in spite of Satan himself, but as the carnal Jews anticipated to forward his own glory together with that of his people. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. Such are the wiles of this fallen spirit, such are the coils of this serpent. So true is it that he spared no effort to procure the downfall of Jesus had it been possible for him to fall. O you, then, who are besieged and, as it were, overwhelmed with temptations, cease from your complainings. When all things conspire against you, when your endeavors, your precautions, your supports, your very prayers become a snare to you, when you feel comfortless, weak, abandoned of men, separated from God, ready to die of anguish, cast one look, one single look, at Jesus in the wilderness. Believe it. One moment spent with him during those forty painful days would have left you recollections capable of strengthening you forever against the doubts which the overwhelming force of temptation suggests, and against the murmurs which it forces from your lips. If you supply by faith that interview, you will feel your courage rise. What can happen to you which has not happened to Jesus? What, indeed, can you meet with but what is far below the trials he had to suffer? No, no, children of God, your Father has not forgotten you. He but deals with you as he has dealt with his only begotten and well-beloved Son. In this are ye conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is tempted. And when? 
after what? And before what? After his baptism, after his fervent prayer, after the heavens have opened above his head, after the Holy Spirit has descended on him, after the voice from heaven has been heard, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. After all this, and even according to Mark, immediately after, it is this moment of glory and of spiritual blessing which is selected for the temptation, selected by Satan, because then the Son of God excites to the highest degree his anger and his jealousy, but at the same time, selected by God, because his Son is then better fortified against all the assaults of the enemy. When, therefore, you are a prey to temptation, do not suppose that you have been forsaken of God. If Satan gathers all his forces against you, it is perhaps because signal graces are making you the object for his blows, whilst at the same time they prepare you to repulse them. We said that temptation is the common lot of humanity. Let us add that extraordinary temptations constitute the privilege of the best, God keeps such trials in store for those heroes of the faith, whom no impediment arrests and no difficulty confounds. For a Moses, a Samuel, a Jeremiah, a poor woman from Canaan, a centurion of Capernaum, a Peter, a Paul, nor is this all. He reserves them not only for the strongest, but, farther, for the period of their greatest strength. God has spared them during the early season of their spiritual career, when they could only lean upon the conscious piety of first love, just as a humane ordinance of Moses exempted for one year every newly married man from the service of war, in order that he might remain at home and cheer up his wife which he had taken. But when once this power of feeling has been replaced by another power more constant and firm, that of the faith which knows how to hope against hope, then comes the season of fatigue and of war. Then the Lord calls his children to severer contests, which keep alike and develop their holy courage. You have just been baptized with a fresh baptism of the Holy Ghost. You have just poured out your whole heart before God in a humble, fervent prayer. You have just seen heaven opened in some sort over you, and heard the voice of the Almighty bearing witness with your spirit that you are the child of God. You believe that for this time, at least, you are beyond the attacks of the evil one. Be not deceived. This is the very moment when you should expect him, and place double watch around your heart. Watch then, and pray. But also remember that this is the moment in which God has been careful to strengthen you beforehand. Therefore, take courage. It was when Paul had been caught up to the third heaven that there was given to him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet him. And before what was Jesus tempted? Before, immediately before the beginning of his ministry, on the eve of entering upon a career wholly devoted to the glory of God, to the salvation of men, to the holiest work that ever was known. As long as Jesus remains at Nazareth, concealed in humble life in the workshop of Joseph, we do not hear that the devil went to seek him. But he no sooner commences his public duties, he no sooner devotes himself to the mission which he has received from his heavenly Father, than he is arrested at the very outset. Be not then astonished at seeing temptation either approach or increase when you are engaged in some good work, some pious undertaking, some enterprise approved of God and man. You especially, young servants of the Lord, who are preparing to exercise in his church the ministry of the word, 
Do not think that anything extraordinary has happened to you, if the time you spend in this holy preparation should be for your soul a time of uncommon trial. As long as you lived under the shelter of the paternal roof in happy obscurity, the faith you imbibed there was as a second nature increasing with your years, and seemed to you so deeply rooted that no storm could ever shake it. But now, deprived of a father's watchful guidance, and of the tender counsels of a faithful mother, called upon to face an unbelieving and profane world, a world that tolerates everything but what is holy and true. Now, having learned enough in the science of divine things to raise more than one perplexing question, yet not enough to solve the questions raised, you are terror-stricken by thoughts of a skeptical nature creeping into your heart. My young friend, be not troubled. This is the common history of all those who have trodden the path before you, it is the history even of the holiest and most faithful. The enemy hath done this, and he does it because he sees you so profitably occupied. He might perhaps consent to leave you more at ease if you yourself would consent to bury the talent which you have received from the Lord. For then, by causing you to fall, he would be injuring you only. But now it is your future ministry he hopes to frustrate. It is a whole people he hopes to deprive of the word of life, if he succeeds in robbing you of your most holy faith. It is this that renders him so vigilant and so active. The work of the Holy Spirit and that of the devil are closely connected. The first provokes the second, and in the invisible world heaven is nigh unto hell. The Holy Ghost conducts Jesus into the wilderness, where he is tempted by the devil, and Satan, when about to tempt Job, appears in the heavenly places in the midst of the sons of God. Forewarned as you are by the example of the Lord himself, fearlessly await the evil one. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Does he render you indifferent in the perusal of the Bible? Pursue your meditations with increased eagerness. Does he discourage you in prayer? Pray with more ardor with more perseverance? Does he turn you away from the simplicity of the faith? Endeavor to grow in the disposition of a little child, as well as in the learning of a theologian. As soon as the enemy sees that you turn his attacks to your own advantage, he will become weary and desist rather than benefit you so much. At any rate, he can undertake nothing against you which the temptation of Jesus Christ should not have caused you to anticipate. The doctors of the synagogue themselves can here instruct you. One of their apocryphal books, Ecclesiasticus, begins its second chapter thus, My son, if thou come to serve the Lord, prepare thy soul for temptation. Finally, Jesus is tempted. And why? The complete answer to this question touches upon those mysteries which we do not pretend to investigate. But the scriptures tell us everywhere that our Lord's temptation was necessary. It behooved him the Apostle expressly says, to be made like in all things unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. It was no doubt necessary likewise to justify by the victory of Jesus Christ the condemnation of man overcome in the same conflict to fill the measure of the Messiah's expiatory offerings, to begin to exhibit in him before the face of heaven, of earth, of hell, that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Perhaps for aught we know, to reveal him completely to himself, to make him perfect through trial, and to carry him forward, conquering and to conquer.' 
Whatever the reason may be, it was necessary that Jesus should be tempted. That is enough. The temptation was no mere accident in his life. It was useful, essential to it. It entered into the plan of our redemption. All the images under which the prophets had described the coming Messiah looked to a strife between himself and the spirit of darkness, a strife of which the narrative supplied by the text is but the prelude. Having come to establish a kingdom, but to establish it upon the ruins of a usurper, the Messiah, that true Joshua, could obtain his dominion only by conquest. He could receive the inheritance of the nations only by wresting it from the prince of this world. The Jews had understood it thus themselves, and it was an article in their belief that the Messiah should be tempted by Satan at the very outset of his career. Our text in its turn acknowledges in the temptation this kind of necessity. Everything is foreseen, arranged, willed by God. Jesus is led, or as Mark has it, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he is tempted by the devil. Mark one twelve, The expression of the evangelist has peculiar energy. It signifies cast or thrown. Matthew expresses himself in terms still more positive. He was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil tempts him and then departs from him, having ended all the temptation. As having played his part, for we know that whilst tempting Jesus, as well as whilst crucifying him, he could only do whatsoever the hand and the counsel of God determined before to be done. Let us learn from this, my dear friends, that the trials of which we complain are useful to us also, essential to perfect our holiness and to fit us for the work which God hath given us to do in the world. God, says James, tempteth no man because he never drives us to sin. But he may bring us into temptation, as he did in the case of his Son, in order to prove us and to know what is in our heart. If we resist temptation, we come forth from it stronger and more devoted, purified as gold in the fire. But if we yield, then no doubt we bear the punishment of our cowardice. Although, even then, if repentance lifts us up again, we have at least learned to know our own weakness and to seek our strength only in the Lord. It is by this incessant battle, while proceeding from victory to victory, or, alas, instead of constant victories, alternate victories and defeats, that the wholesome exercise of our faith acquires its development. The tempest prostrates and uproots the tree slightly rooted in the soil, but if it shakes the one whose grasp is firm, it is only for the purpose of driving deeper and deeper down those thousand hidden arms by which it penetrates and clings firmly to the earth. Tribulation, the Apostle writes, works patience, patience experience, and experience hope. Romans 5, verse 4. In order to understand distinctly these deep truths, we must bear in mind that experience here means the test which tribulation makes of our faith, and the tested or tried character it imparts to it. Hope, likewise, does not signify an expectation more or less uncertain, but the firm assurance of those good things to come, which we as yet possess only by faith. Romans eight twenty two and 24 When we are afflicted, we are exercised to patience. When we have suffered with patience, we know on trial our faith to be genuine. And when our faith has thus been tried, we have a firm and glorious assurance in the grace of our Lord. 
What is said here of tribulation, that species of temptation most frequently dwelt upon in the word of God, is also true of all other forms. And hence the Apostle James, in the energetic and paradoxical language so peculiar to him, exhorts us to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, and calls blessed not the man who is not tempted, but him who endureth temptation. That is to say, who undergoes it without yielding to it. For when he is tried, when he has resisted in seasons of trial, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. If Jesus needed his temptation, we need ours also. Satan's work is necessary to complete that of the Holy Spirit, and in this world nothing comes to perfection except it has been helped on by the devil. In order to enlighten Job's faith, to strengthen his heart and perfect his joy, the cruel display of Satan's malice was necessary. The perfidious detractors who cast Daniel into the lion's den were necessary to him, in order that he might know during the peaceful night which he spent amidst those terrible animals all the power and all the faithfulness of his God. Paul needed that thorn in his flesh, that messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, that he might be kept humble and not exalted above measure through the abundance of his revelations, that he might feel the power of that word which comforted him, and which will comfort the saints to the end of time, when I am weak, then am I strong. Peter needed that court of the high priest to show him his own weakness, so that after the confession and the forgiveness of his sin, he might reappear in the eyes of the church, worthier than ever of the distinction which the Lord had bestowed upon him, and which he continued to him, notwithstanding his fall. Chrysostom needed the anger of his master, Augustine the perils of his youth, Luther the mortal conflicts of his soul, Calvin his weak health and his implacable enemies, and you, my dear brother, whom Satan seems to have selected as the object of his most powerful attacks, you upon whose downfall his whole pride appears bent, you who are driven to the last extremity and ready to succumb, you who join in the Messiah's cry of anguish in the Psalms, I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me, my throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. Be assured, all this was necessary for you. It was the very thing you required to teach you to serve God, to confound the great adversary, and to fill you with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You are a child of God, his beloved, his privileged child, and in very truth, if we could rise above the flesh and judge according to the word of God, we should be more inclined to envy than to pity you. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, but rather resist Hold fast unto the end, give glory to God, and abound in thanksgiving. Young servants of God, if temptation is necessary for all, it is doubly so for you. This fight which you are beginning to carry on against the opposition of the world, and especially against the natural unbelief of your own hearts, should not surprise you. It is the narrow path through which you must proceed in order to reach a firmer faith, in order to learn, as your Saviour did, by the anguish of temptation, to sympathize one day with the infirmities of others, and to succor those that are tempted. Listen to what was said on this subject by a great master in the school of Christian experience, a hero who fought valiantly against the powers of the world and of hell. Luther, writing to a young theologian, 
makes him observe in the 119th Psalm three principal means by which the inspired writer strengthens himself in the divine life, prayer, meditation on the scriptures, and temptation. And hear how he expresses himself on the last of these three points. Temptation is the touchstone which will make you not only know and understand, but feel how correct the word of God is, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how powerful, how consoling, how wise above all other wisdom. Without temptation there are no good preachers, but only mere babblers, who know not themselves of what they speak nor why. As Paul says to Timothy, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. This is why you see David in our psalm often complaining of all sorts of enemies, oppressors, rebellious, and obstinate spirits, whom he must endure, because he carries everywhere with him the word of God. For as soon as you begin to give your witness to the word of God, the devil will endeavor to tempt you, that you may become a good divine, and that through the trials by which he visits you, you may learn to explore and to love his word of life. I am under the greatest obligations to the papists myself, who with the aid of all the din of Satan have so ill-treated me and driven me to such an extremity of anguish that they have succeeded in making of me a tolerable theologian, which I never could have been but for their assistance. And as for what, on the other hand, they have gained from me, I willingly yield to them the honors, the victories, and the triumphs which make up the whole object of their desires. Lord Jesus, we would no more complain of temptation. We have this day found thee in the wilderness. Thither we will not refuse to follow thee. We have glanced at what thou hast suffered, being tempted, and the sight has affected us to the very depth of our hearts. Thou didst endure temptation in order to be like unto us. Shall we not consent to suffer, that we also may be like unto thee? We distrust ourselves, Lord, and as thou didst teach us, we say, Lead us not into temptation. But if into temptation we must be led, then we confidently add, as thou hast further taught us, Deliver us from the evil one. It is enough for us to remember that we have in thee a merciful and faithful high priest, who, because he has himself suffered being tempted, can also succor those who are tempted. How sweet is this thought to us, O Lord! Thus, whatever be our temptations, Thou hast known them before us, Thou hast beforehand overcome them for us. Therefore it is, O our compassionate Saviour, that we pour out our hearts in Thy presence with a holy freedom, and were it possible for us to be tried as You were Yourself tried, still would we come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is not at us that thine enemy and ours levels his blows. Thee, thee alone he attacks in us. Thou therefore must defend us, triumph over him in us, and since thou hast been tempted like as we are, make us conquerors like unto thyself. Amen.